Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. If you're an employer, how do you react when one of your workers starts exhibiting erratic behavior? We'll be joined later in the show by senior employment reporter Braden Campbell, who walk us through the do's and don'ts of dealing with employees who are suffering from a mental illness. And later on, we'll end the show with an IP dispute over one of the shows I loved as a kid, Reading Rainbow. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. But we are not here with our co-host, Alex Lawson. I could pretend to be Alex if you want. Yeah, I do want. Hi, guys. <laughs> Alex will love that that makes it into the show later. Or was it hey, guy- hey, guys? You can't even do an invitation correctly if you can't get the like, wording right. I know, the signature phrase. Yeah. But um, uh, for the listeners, Alex is still with the program. We've not booted him off. He just is on vacation Alex today. has been let go. <laughs> But we will have a little Alex in the podcast later because the segment we have about how you deal with mental illness in the workplace with Braden Campbell, we had Alex in for that. We pre-recorded that. See, that we should have we should have just lied to the listener and been like, Alex showed up mid mid taping. This is great. <laughs> he couldn't handle not being yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just left to me and you today, Bill, it's to talk us. about some stuff. Um I have an honest-to-goodness landmark ruling up top to discuss. Hit me. Tell me about it. So on Monday, the Seventh Circuit upheld the first-ever conviction for a market manipulation tactic that's called spoofing. Mm-hmm. So the ruling was against a New Jersey futures trader and became the first appellate court to give guidance on that relatively new crime. So when I think of spoofing, I think of of lighthearted films, like the, na- <laughs> like the Naked Gun, say. You know, movies that, that, that spoofed a film that that we all enjoyed, I have to imagine that's not an issue here. That is not what this person is in jail for right, for so the next three years. Tell me so, what spoofing is. So, like I said, it's a relatively new crime. It was mm-hmm. created in 2010 as part of Dodd-Frank, and it involves manipulating the market with these large orders with the intent to cancel them, And but you're capitalizing on the price flux. Okay, yeah. Um, so basically what that means is they use computers to trick other people into thinking there's more demand. Sure. And then when that price fluctuation happens, and it can just be for seconds or, or even less than seconds, you capitalize on it with an algorithm to place smaller orders. In right. That time it sounds period. like a new term for a like something that probably didn't exist 15 years ago. Yeah, because right. this is all technology driven. We're talking right. about algorithms and computers that are making these trades really quickly. Right. So what happened in the case that, that came down this week? So there was a trader, his name's Michael Kosica, mm-hmm. and he used a pair of algorithms to mislead other traders into dealing in futures contracts for a bunch of commodities like gold and soybean oil, mm-hmm. copper. Um, so he had this algorithm that placed these really large bids, and he would either drive up or down the price. The, mm-hmm. the point was to have a fluctuation there. But he would yank those bids before anyone could actually fulfill them. And so, how, much, how much money did he make on this? He... In only three months in 2011, made $1.4 million. Whoa. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I mean, three months. Um, I mean, not that I want us to lead lives of crime, but we're doing the wrong thing as journalists. I think about leading a life of crime all the time. When you hear stuff like this, absolutely. Um, But we don't want to go to jail. So that's the downside. He was convicting of spoofing um, and also commodities fraud. And Mm -hmm. he's like, I think I said a few minutes ago, he's serving a three-year sentence. He was the very first person to be convicted of this. Okay. So this was the Seventh Circuit though. So it was an appeal, right? It was. Yeah. He said that the statute that ensnared him was unconstitutionally vague. Mm -hmm. And he made an argument that it could criminalize basically any kind of high frequency trading. And much of that's legal. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you read, I mean, you read about the high frequency trading all the time. And, you know, what was the Michael Lewis book a couple of years ago? Flash Boys, right? Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So what did the Seventh Circuit say? They said there was no concern that what Costco was doing might have been legit. Mm-hmm. He, they, they basically said it was a complete whim for the government. They said the law's language is very clear and that the evidence presented at trial was plenty to convict I'm sure him. the government was thrilled that this was the first appellate ruling. Yeah, on it, that I mean, it was, you know, simple facts that weren't, that wasn't a close case. We talk a lot on this podcast about situations where we have a bellwether or um, a test case and yeah. it ends up being really murky and muddy and causing problems. But this is like the exact scenario the government would have wanted. <laughs> yeah, right. It was, um, so the key here is that the government presented testimony from the designer of the algorithm that Costco was using. Mm-hmm. And that guy said that Costco asked him for, quote, uh, something that would act like a decoy. Right. And so... Decoy and, comes up. Decoy yeah, is a control F word when you're... Yeah. It sure is. So basically that meant that the jury hearing this had something to hold on to. I mean, it's really hard to understand these high-tech trade manipulations yeah. and and the stuff that's either very computer-heavy or very finance-heavy, which is maybe not easy yeah. for every juror. But when you have a word like, yeah, the guy said to me, <laughs> I want this to, quote, act like a decoy, that's pretty easy to grasp. So what does this mean going forward for other spoofing cases? Well, it removes all those questions about the constitutionality of that spoofing law. The Seventh uh-huh. Circuit said, nope, this is fine. And obviously, it's going to strengthen the government's efforts to crack down here. Right. But I have to imagine there there might be closer cases going forward that might push closer toward toward this line that, that we didn't get near her on this one, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there may be closer ones, but um, we had Tom Zanke, who's mm-hmm. uh, one of our senior reporters here. He did a feature about this and what it would mean going forward. And there was a Morgan Lewis partner that told him the case shows that any questions about how to proceed this and them being too complex for juries were completely put to rest. These cases can be prosecuted and predicted basically that the Justice Department and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission will be emboldened. They're just going to bring a bunch more of these. Huh. Yeah. Cool. So we're going to see a lot more about spoofing. So yeah. I'm glad we've explained it to everybody. Yeah. So, Bill, what do you want to talk about today? So I wanted to talk about, and uh, we, you know, for the listener, we have sort of a rule here that we're not supposed to uh, talk too much about our own beats. But um, Alex isn't here to enforce the rule, right? Obviously. Exactly. So uh, a couple of interesting fair use cases are sort of percolating through the court system, and we did a big story uh, last week on, you know, what these cases are and what they're going to mean in the in the next six months to a year. So for the listeners who aren't IP nerds like we are, just <laughs> explain fair use up top. So fair use is what allows anyone to use a piece of another work. It's what allows the Daily Show to use little clips of news broadcasts because they're they're you know that's a copyrighted news broadcast, but they're criticizing it, they're commenting on it. It's a sort of an umbrella term for all sorts of different ways that you can use copyrighted works. So it's like a, safe exceptions, basically. Yeah, exactly. It 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 allows for a teacher to copy something from a from a book and and use it with their students. It allows you to um, all sorts of things that would be covered by by copyright law. Fair use allows you to to nonetheless use. It's 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 an important safety valve that that sort of says you know copyright is designed to lock up certain expression for certain people, but it, it's it's in the interest of everyone creating more ideas and creating more expression. So you need to be able to use those kind of works. So as well. you wrote a story where 
you were talking about sort of the next frontier of yeah. cases that will be decided. And that's pretty interesting because the jurisprudence here is pretty deep. Yeah. The, the <laughs> case law on right. fair use is extensive, but there's still unanswered questions. So you have a couple of fun ones, I think, that we can pull out and sort of talk about what issues are, are yeah. going on. So there's one, there's one really fun one that's uh, involving Beyonce. And she... Which is always what I want to talk about in this podcast. Exactly. So she was sued in February by the estate of a deceased YouTube star um, named Anthony Barr, um, known to his fans as Messy Maya, on the accusations that she used little snippets of clips of him walking around New Orleans. um, And she put those clips into the beginning of her song, Formation. So, uh, and that was just to give it like New Orleans flavor. Exactly. Like he was this famous New Orleans personality. And so she used these little pieces of it in, in her song as a way to give it this New Orleans vibe. Um, the estate sued her saying that you can't use those. Those were copyrighted videos. You're using a little piece of our copyrighted material. And um, she pretty quickly argued fair use. Which is weird, right? Because sampling has not been used. Fair use has not been the defense to sampling cases. Exactly. It's a big, you know, early on, uh, a lot of the sampling that you'd hear in in hip hop was was unauthorized. It was a big part of what made hip hop into what it was. And in the mid 2000s, there was this court ruling that said, if you want to sample songs, go get a license. There's no exception. There's no nothing. Just go get a, a license. And so, that basically shut this down. Exactly. So, and but but what that ruling didn't say anything about was was fair use. Um, it left that open. But for some strange reason, no one has really gone to bat for that. No one has argued that fear. that, that the, fair the use. The reason is fear. I guess. Right? Yeah. So you get someone like Beyonce who has the money to to argue this, and you're now. It's something that, that, that copyright attorneys are really going to be watching because it could totally change this landscape of the idea that, that if you want to use any little piece of a prior recording in your song, you immediately have to clear it. This could open things up and make them slightly more uh, loose in when it comes to what you can use in, in making a song, whether or not you can use little little tiny snippets of previous songs and, and loop them and sample them. Right. And, yeah. Exactly. So it's it, it could be a big, big change. Yeah. I'm, all the entertainment attorneys are going to be totally. watching this one really closely. Yeah. So what's the other one you want to talk about? We're going to pivot from Beyonce to Instagram. Which we're just hitting all the buttons for me today or all the things I want to talk about. Right. So at the center of this case is a guy named Richard Prince. He is a somewhat controversial figure in the world of copyright law, fairly well known. He is what's known as an appropriation artist. Which is a term in the art world, apparently. It is. It's So he takes previous works and uh, uses them, oftentimes without paying for them, oftentimes without seeking any sort of authorization, sometimes without giving any credit. So, And that's his, that's his shtick. That's what he does, and he has a big following. So what he did here was, in 2014, he hung... Uh, I think it was like 20 or 25 of these Instagram images. He pulled images from Instagram and blew them up with the frame around the outside of the Instagram app. So it just looked like it an looks Instagram like a, picture. Right. And then he added some of his own commentary to the bottom of it, you know, just little things. And the kicker is that he later sold some of these works for very a lot large of money, right? very large sums. So this guy named Donald Graham He's a photographer, and one of his images was used in this gallery. Um, it was pulled from the internet, blown up, 
put the frame around it. And um, this one's a Rastafarian guy. It's a pretty striking image. That's right. And then the only thing really that Prince added, it was otherwise pretty much unaltered. He added some pretty bizarre commentary on the bottom. They look like Instagram comments. Right. Uh, it says, real bongo nyaman a real Congo. <laughs> and then he has like his own. I have like, a feeling own... this might be slightly easier to read in print than yes. for you to have to say it on the podcast. Yes. But basically it's. You know, like a faux Instagram comment. Yeah, it feels vaguely racist. Um, uh, a little bit. Yeah, Sounds but it. then and then he has like a he had like one from himself that said, "Canal Zinian da Lamjam." What is that um, even? Unclear. It's like okay. bordering on bordering on gibberish, but I, I'm sure it has a point. But so Graham sued Prince over over this installation, and Prince pretty quickly argued fair use. He right. said. That, yes, he took the images, but that he had transformed them with his commentary of the, the you know, the, the broader commentary that he was intending to convey. With, and it with was, his, it must have been about like. It was about social, social media, media, the pervasiveness exactly. of it, the power gotcha. of it. That's his big point, his big idea that he's trying okay. to comment on with the installation. So the sort of upshot here that's interesting about it is that Prince won this big ruling four, five years ago that a lot of people viewed as expanding fair use. He did a very similar thing. He took a bunch of images. They actually involved um, a Rastafarian again, but he added these aesthetic changes. He drew all over them and did all sorts of other stuff. And he won this ruling in the Second Circuit that said this is fair use. And people viewed it as sort of lowering the bar for what fair use was. So he pushed the boundary that first pushed time. Pushed the boundary. But this this second time, he's he didn't draw on them in some way. He only added these very small changes, these comments at the bottom. Correct. What do attorneys say about it this go-round? This one is going to be harder to prove fair use. It than sounds the, much harder. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the fact that he made almost no actual alterations to them is is pretty important but also you know fair use does protect commentary if he was if he was doing something where where he was commenting on the image he was criticizing it or he was mocking it or he was doing anything that would be one thing but he took a fine art I mean, this this guy sells his. He's a photographer. Sells, yeah, he sells his images. He sells them, and he and particularly here, importantly, he sells this image blown up. That it's, it's right. So, if if Prince had taken, you know, if Prince wanted to comment on this image, it would be a much closer case of fair use. But he's not. He's commenting on this big idea, right? Like the broader concept of social media, not this one Rastafarian picture. Correct. Yeah. And he sort of, you know, he just chose to take a copyrighted image that I, I think they would argue he didn't really need to. So that's sort of the the what what makes this a, a harder case that you know fair use is very important and and I don't think anyone argues otherwise. But what the attorneys that I spoke to at least said is that taking unaltered images to comment on some third idea and then selling them for $100,000, those are some pretty tough facts to, to argue fair yeah, use. Yeah, it sounds really tough. And I yeah. think Prince made a big mistake by not taking one of my many delightful pictures I've put on Instagram. Yeah, I don't think, I can't imagine, I can't imagine Mookie AM would uh, would, <laughs> I mean, would sue him for... He, uh, I wouldn't sue him. I would be flattered if he wanted one of my beautiful pictures of the glories of Jersey City, New Jersey, where I live. Well, um, we, I can put you in touch with his lawyer. There um, you go. Yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> That's my future. <laughs> All right, thanks, Phil. These are both really interesting ones. We'll see how they develop. Absolutely. when a trusted employee starts exhibiting erratic behavior? That can be a tricky question for employers. 
the issue becomes even more complicated if the change can be tied to mental health problems. This week, we're joined by senior employment reporter Braden Campbell to talk about how employers can deal with employees who are suffering from a mental illness without ending up in court. Welcome, Braden. Hi. So, Braden, to kick us off, can you just set up what an employer is required to do under the law for a mentally ill worker? Yeah. So, um, so the law that applies here is the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which you know broadly um, protects disabled people. But in the employment context, um, this means employers can't discriminate against disabled workers because they're disabled. Um, you know, this means they can't you know pay somebody less because they're disabled. Uh, they can't refuse to hire them because they're disabled. They can't fire them because they're disabled. And the, the ADA also obligates uh, employers to provide what's called a reasonable accommodation uh, to disabled workers so long as it does not cause them an undue hardship. Uh, so there's a lot of things involved here. It makes kind of a tricky law. So as you said, Braden, this is a bit of a tricky law. How, do, um, how does this get triggered? How do employers know if someone's disabled or is this law triggered even if they don't? Haven't been told by their employee? Yeah, I mean, well, there, there are kind of a few ways it can either um, an employer can be told by their employee that they are you know, disabled at, at any step, you know, in, in hiring or, you know, when, when they have the job. Um, it can be triggered, you know, the, an employer has an obligation not to discriminate even if they, per, if they perceive somebody to have a disability, regardless whether they actually have it. And it can also um, you know, be found down the road, you know, if, if there's a, a performance concern and the worker... Um, is is evaluated that can be triggered then because yeah. a doctor you can learn them. about right. yeah so I mean that does set us up that there's um, potentially many many times it gets triggered because mental illness covers all sorts of things yeah I was gonna I really the, the the elemental like an elementary question about what mental illness means in the context of the ADA I mean what what sorts of um, issues are we talking about? Yeah, here? no. So, so the EEOC says somebody's disabled when they have a condition that um, limits a, a major life activity. Um, and you know, mental illnesses. There's there's a lot that can apply here. There's kind of some of the most common are anxiety, uh, depression, post traumatic stress disorder. You know, um, if if somebody is, is is so stressed that it it causes them to have trouble focusing or, or performing at work. You know, that that can be. That, that's a major life activity and that can be a disa- disability in that sense. So we're basically saying it's so many things that pretty much every employer at some point is going to have to yeah, there, wrangle a, through this law and figure it out. It's very possible, yeah. So say I'm a, say I'm a manager, I'm, a, I'm an employer, and you know it's easy for me to know that, that, that I need to accommodate a, a physically disabled person. But I imagine if you're seeing signs of, of potentially of mental illness in, a, in an employee, you might want to go up and say, are they doing okay? You know, what, what should a manager do when they see behavior that's sort of, um, sort of erratic? What, what can they do to stay on the, on the right side of the law, but still, but still talk to their employee? Yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you said. They can go up and say, you know, Hey, uh, are you okay? You know, Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's totally fine. What you can't do is say, Hey, do you have a mental illness? You know, that's going to be, you're getting into the the perception territory. So basically if, um, Actually, everybody in the booth right now has been on my team at one time or another. So I can't go up to Bill and say, Bill, you are acting really funny. Are you depressed? Right. Like, and you that's can't. That's a problem. And because yeah. of the perception thing, I imagine mm-hmm. you can't even speculate with other employees. You can't send an email to HR saying, I think Bill maybe is. Yeah, is that's, that's going to be right. uh, a danger if it you know were, were to come out in a mm-hmm. suit or anything like right. that. But I can be a human and yes. say, um, Thank hey, God for that. You're so, well, I mean, I try, guys. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can be a human with some empathy and say, hey, Bill, your stories have been coming in 
really rough lately. You've been coming into work late. Is mm-hmm. everything okay? Yeah, exactly. You can you can broach the subject, but you have to do so through you know a performance lens. You look at it through, like you just said, you know your your you've been coming in late, or you know your stories have been coming in late, and you say you know here's this this issue. Is everything okay? And you also explain that you know these are things that you, know, you need to be fixed. You need to perform in a certain way as well. Establish that. Uh, talking about tethering things to performance makes me want to get into how these rules apply in situations where the I mean, we, the, the term of art we're using here is some kind of erratic behavior. Mm-hmm. If that behavior is a is a safety issue, if you mm-hmm. work in like a, in a, something that manufactures things or there is like operating heavy heavy equipment things like that how does how does that change the game at all um yeah i mean in if it's a workplace uh you know if it's a hazardous workplace yeah. and you know you you think again you know serious actual tangible performance related things you think that an employee is you know poses a, a concern for whatever reason um you can ask them or have them undertake what's called a fitness for duty exam where you know they will you know, be be evaluated for their their fitness for duty, but you have to keep in mind um, that this exam it has to be tailored specifically for that duty. You can't you know. So it's basically can, like, yeah. can you run the forklift? Yes. Not exactly. Are you anxious? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. You don't put them through the through the trials at Colossus or something. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so you're like really strict to yep, what you're strictly your tied job to what is. the job is. If if it's you were. At, evaluating whether they can perform this job. So you mentioned at the outset this idea of reasonable accommodations. So mm-hmm. let's get into the realm of someone has disclosed that they are mentally ill, someone that they have this this disorder. Mm-hmm. What do you do then? How how does as we've mentioned earlier, it's this this is easier it would seem in the in the realm of physical disabilities that it's easier it, it's easier to know what to do. What should an employer what 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 do those reasonable accommodations look like when it comes to mental illness? Yeah, so so when an employer finds out that an employee does have mm-hmm. um uh, a disability or mental health disability, they have to engage in that um in that process for finding a reasonable accommodation. So, you know, there there are a number of uh forms that, you know, that that can sort of take. So, you know, an employee who is um really stressed out can you know be allowed to you know maybe take breaks when they're feeling stressed mm-hmm. something like that or you know employee who has ADD or has trouble focusing might be able to you know be moved to a quieter area of their office or have their own you know private office but how far does an employer have to go with these kind of accommodations it seems like those are some examples where it might be fairly easy to have a few meetings talk about what's going on with the employee and and give them an option but is there a point when the employer just says I don't think you can do this job anymore. Yeah, it's it's there is no clear line between when something becomes an undue hardship and when an accommodation becomes unreasonable. But it's the kind of thing that um, an employer is going to um, learn, I guess, as they engage in this process. If they make a, a good faith effort to you know listen to what the employee wants, try to implement things, think you know, hey, can we do this, or is it going to be a problem? If they you know approach it that way then they're probably going to know what, what is and what isn't. And your story had a good example of of a situation where the the employer made a decision that it you know it, it, it was there was too much to ask. Can you can you talk, can you walk us through that? Yeah. So one of one of the attorneys I spoke with uh, for that story mentioned how once he had a client who um, hired somebody for a uh, a tech support position, you know, to do sort of in person mm-hmm. tech work for the company. 
Um, and after after hiring them, this person disclosed that um, they had agoraphobia and asked that they be accommodated by so being allowed to work remotely. What, let's uh, set it up for everybody. Sorry. What's agoraphobia? Uh, agoraphobia is kind of the, the fear of, of being in public. Hmm. So being out. Yeah. I suppose. So, so for somebody who has to perform tech support in person, it's going to be a hard thing to accommodate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so what did that worker ask for? Just uh, they, to work the, from home? Yes, that worker asked to, to work from home, which, you know, in, in their job is something that's going to conflict with that. So you know, that's a situation where it could pose or would likely pose an undue hardship to provide them the accommodation they asked. So um, let's sum up what employers should take away. I think we've talked about a few things here, but what are some like key things for them to know? Because it Odds are this is going to come up for a lot of employers. Yeah. So the key things you're going to want to know are and kind of keep it very uh, strictly performance based. Um, and uh, when when it does, if it does come to the point where you learn an employee has a disability, then you're going to make a good faith, you know, really engage in that interactive process to uh, to make sure you accommodate them well. Thanks, Braden. That's great advice for all the employers out there listening. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. We like to end our show with something a little offbeat, and I'm super psyched today to talk about Reading Rainbow. And to talk about it with us, because again, Alex is not here, even though you just heard him in that interview. <laughs> Magic. Uh, we've got our lovely producer, Steve Trader, here with us. Wait, wait, hold on. Hey, guys. There we go. <laughs> oh, Fake Alex. We're, we're all Found doing now it. Everyone, <laughs> now everyone has done an Alex impersonation, except me. I might have to end the show with it. Well, you're yeah. his boss, so that may yeah, cross some like uh, some like labor law thresholds. Then I become the offbeat next week. Right. Um, <laughs> so you guys remember LeVar Burton. He's of course I do. Jordy LaForge on Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Love that show. But what we probably all remember him for the most is Reading Rainbow, because it ran so long. It was on from 1983 to 2006, so it basically hits everybody's childhood. Fills everybody's childhood, yeah. yeah. So, and I love that show. I'm a big reader nerd as a sure. kid, so that was a real sweet spot for me. So, LeVar Burton is in court over some Reading Rainbow-related IP. Mm-hmm. What happened this week, a lawsuit was filed by a New York public broadcaster. It's WNED, is their call signal. Mm-hmm. They say that LeVar Burton took control of a website that directed people looking for Reading Rainbow to his own site, which is oh. called LeVar Burton Kids. So they filed the suit on Monday, and the court acted really quickly to enjoin him from doing a few things. Um, one thing that was enjoined on Tuesday of this week uh, was the use of the control of that website. It's that he had to turn it back over to the broadcaster. And then they also said he can't use the show's catchphrase. And if you guys don't remember that, it was... But you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, they used to say that in like every episode. That's like, um, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember a couple, it was about a year ago, I guess. Um, uh, Viacom sent a cease and desist to um, Stephen Colbert's new show on CBS saying that because he was starting to use his yeah, like sort of old persona. From, right. Right. So it's sort of, it's where it, it's interesting. It's a similar thing where it blurs the line of like, where's your, you know, where's your personal brand? Where's your personal character right. versus What's the, the, the IP that actually right. belongs to, to the, to the old network. Yeah. So this came up, um, the catchphrase part, primarily because LeVar Burton, I don't know if you guys have heard, 
he has a new podcast. So I'm getting a little meta podcast talking about a podcast. But LeVar Burton's new podcast is literally called LeVar Burton Reads. Uh-huh. And it's him reading short fiction. And he's done a couple things. Um, I actually listened to a few of these. And not just to prepare for this segment. No, I just, just for was pleasure. Great. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty fun podcast. So LeVar Burton comes on. In the first episode, he explains that the idea for the podcast is reading Rainbow for Adults. Mm. And then later in the show, in that episode, he uses the catchphrase. So obviously this made the public broadcaster who's fighting about this IP pretty upset that he's branding it in that way. Yeah. So Burton is pretty uh, closely tied to reading Rainbow. And if I remember correctly, this is not the first time that he's had IP woes over, over connections to reading Rainbow. It isn't even close to the first time. So this has been going on for a while. Mm-hmm. And the nutshell of it is uh, LeVar Burton and this public broadcasting company had um, been working together to try to revive the show. So they'd given him a license for the IP. LeVar Burton, um, you guys might remember, he set up a Kickstarter for the mm-hmm. revival project. And of course, everybody in our age range loved that idea and immediately sure. gave him money. Nostalgia. Yeah, it, it, it raised $6.5 million. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Wow. So they used that money to um, make an iPad app. They did some videos that were like the field pieces like used to be in the Reading Rainbow show. Uh-huh. But this is all... In a partnership. Um, it fell apart when LeVar Burton started talking to Netflix about Ooh. a full-blown revival. Yeah. And the allegation from the broadcaster is that they got cut out in those talks. Oh. And so it was LeVar Burton and his company so with did, the license and, talking to Netflix. And the the public broadcaster owned the, the rights to Reading Rainbow? They owned the rights. And they had licensed it to LeVar Burton, but they got mad that they felt like they were getting cut out. And they rescinded that license those, those public broadcasters they're just uh, <laughs> just just sharks you know yeah uh, we so, will be we will be suing you for everything that you are worth so ultimately they got mad they rescinded that license lavar burton said they didn't have uh, the authority to rescind it based on the contract they had so there's that's that fight's still going on in yeah. court and this is just what we talked about that happened on Monday and Tuesday about the enjoining of him using some of that IP, that's a separate suit, but it's the but same you see party. But you see it's this stuff happen all the time battle. with when there's these sort of acrimonious fights where they'll spawn off into different cases. Yes. They'll say that you did this, you did that. So I feel like he worked so hard, though, to like revive the Reading Rainbow brand like he should at least get to keep his like catchphrase or something like that. <laughs> like, you know? Well, I mean, they will fight it out in court. You know, the, the enjoyment um, is Right now, just through September 1st, when they have another hearing on it, uh, it could be extended, of course, and, and who knows what will happen next. But for right now, he can't say things like, but you don't have to take my word for it. Oh. Yeah. Can't can say I it. drive the Jeep with no doors? Do you remember the Jeep with no doors? <laughs> that's, that's like, I, I, I just picture that when I think of reading Rainbow. Oh, man, I can't get that song on my head. It's Butterfly been stuck in there. in the sky. <laughs> oh, God. You know it. Yeah. Should, we, should we all sing it? <laughs> Are the microphones set up for this, Kelly? <laughs> I'll take a shot. I, I, really I can do anything. See, we got Except it. for probably come we on the podcast. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to sue you for singing that song right now for my emotional well-being. Great, guys. So the now that we're at the devolve to the point of just seeing the theme song, I think mm-hmm. we've laid out what's going on with LeVar Burton. Thanks for coming on the show today, Steve. Thanks for having me. And Bill, as always, thanks for being here with me. Thanks, guys. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Braden Campbell. Contributing reporters this week include Diana Novak-Jones, Tom Zanke, and Kat Green. 
Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassmen. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.